Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. Sarah, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. It's not Halloween yet. By the time this comes out, it still won't be Halloween. But by the time Halloween happens, this will still be the most recent regular episode of the show. So this is our Halloween episode. Yay! Happy yeah. Halloween. Happy Halloween. The most wonderful time of the year. Mm-hmm. We hope that uh, all of you creatures of the night out there have a happy, fun, scary, spooky, safe, safe Halloween. <laughs> Before we get started into the main body of things, I want to tell our listeners what kind of spooky treats we have on offer for this Halloween as well. We have on Saturday our horror-adjacent episode for the month coming out on the 1991 version of The Addams Family. Yes. That was a very fun episode to record. I think it's going to be really fun to listen to. I can vouch for it being fun to listen to because I'm currently editing it, like (laughs) actively editing it. Yep. On Sunday, October 31st, our special bonus episode for patrons of the night is going to go up. And that is going to be an interesting sort of off formula episode where Sarah and I are going to discuss two different subgenres of horror. In one corner, gothic horror. And in the other corner, sci-fi horror. Who will win out? Just kidding, it's not a match. Be there, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Already out is uh, an extra treat for patrons. It is an audiobook adaptation of Marganita Lasky's short story, The Tower. Available now on patreon.com slash podcast for all patrons of the night. Uh, again, as a... Halloween treat. Yeah, so if you enjoyed in past years things like Sarah's audio adaptation of Carmilla, uh, this is in that same vein, but it's very, very good. Thank you. You're welcome. So, Ben, what are we watching this week? Well, I'm very happy, Sarah, because we've got a good one. Okay. It's Night of the Demon, aka Curse of the Demon, from 1957, directed by our old friend Jacques Tourneur. So, uh, is Etrigan gonna show up here? Maybe like his big brother. Maybe okay. like Etrigan's like big evil, evil brother. brother. Yeah. Uh, Etrigan is a comic book character who's known as the Demon. This film is based on a short story from a pretty famous ghost story author. Yes. And also like bible apocrypha translator if if you listen to this show and apocrypals you'll you'll know this guy yes the film night of the demon is adapted from the short story casting the runes from mr james uh mr actually stands for montague Rhodes, and he was born august 1st 1862 now he is known as a medievalist scholar and a proud antiquarian Uh, As well as a writer of ghost stories. I feel like he would be most proud of those first two things, but not that he would shun away from the title of uh, ghost 
story writer. Definitely a kindred spirit to our friend Benito Serino. Hopefully not in politics. No, I just meant in hobbies. (laughs) Sure, yes. Montague's father was an evangelical Anglican clergyman, and he grew up in the rectory at Suffolk. At 14, he entered Eton College and began studying there for the next six years, sparking his academic interest in antiquarian artifacts. Um, Now, everything that I've read says that he claims that he translated the Book of Baruch from Ethiopic in 1879. Um, Everything said that he claims this, so I... I, I don't know if he actually did. Mm. Benito Serino will know if he actually did. Yes. But I, Sarah Rowe, do not. Mm. He moved to King's College to work as a fellow, then was hired as a provost, focusing on studying medieval texts and classics. Kind of his first claim to fame, like his first big break, I guess you could call it, is uh, in 1902, he rediscovered this manuscript at the Bury St. Edmund's Abbey, and this led them to rediscovering some lost graves of uh, some abbots. He has written travel guides of here are some castles and cathedrals and abbeys you don't want to miss on your tours. Uh, he also did cathedral descriptions and sketches, so he would be really into Gothic architecture uh, to kind of paint a picture of this guy. Um, he's also very well known for translating the New Testament Apocrypha. And with all of this stuff under his belt and other academic work that he would do, he is known as a major figure in medieval studies, being awarded the Order of Merit in 1930. He became an author of ghost stories kind of by chance. Um, He would tell these ghost stories to friends at Christmas time, as is a very common tradition. Yes. Um, And eventually he was convinced to collect them and publish them, first with 1904's collection titled Ghost Stories of an Antiquarian. Sure, a descriptive title. Exactly. I mean... Is what it says on the tin. Exactly. Um, And it it did really well. People really enjoyed it. So he published... uh, More ghost stories of an antiquarian. Yes, that is literally the name. Oh my God, really? I was just goofing. (laughs) No, it's called More Ghost Stories of an Antiquarian. (laughs) So More Ghost Stories came out in 1911. He followed that up with 1919's A Thin Ghost and Others. Okay. And 1925's A Warning to the Curious and Other Ghost Stories. Okay, he got better with titles as he went. (laughs) Those are the only collections he published for ghost stories. Everything else that he published uh, in terms of books and all that is stuff in medieval studies. Right. But they were popular enough um, to warrant like a lot of positive feedback and also people started to notice he had his own kind of story structure. Okay. And it became known as the Jamesian story structure. Okay. So this story structure has three elements. First, a characterful setting. Lots of characters. Okay. Two, a nondescript protagonist who is more than likely a scholar and a gentleman. Right. Author stand-in like H.P. Lovecraft does. Absolutely. And third, some kind of antiquarian artifact, a book, talisman, runes, 
uh, is what brings in the supernatural element. Write what you know, as they say. Exactly. In these stories, um, there are a few things that James was like, this is key. One, atmosphere. I haven't read any of his stuff, but I feel like he would fit very well into a gothic literary tradition. Sure. Judging by his interests. Two, pacing is key, specifically having it be normal and then as the story goes on, things get weirder and more supernatural until it crescendos into all supernatural mm-hmm. by the end. Mm-hmm. And finally, that supernatural element should be malevolent. He has this quote saying like, fairy tales are all fine for like a kid, but these stories, there needs to be some danger. I'd agree with those principles for like a, a horror story. Yeah. So he was a big fan of uh, Sheridan Le Fanu. Okay. Um, which I, I think is really interesting. But he disliked most contemporary literature, um, specifically seemed to have it out for Aldous Huxley in particular, yeah. to the point where he like fought for Huxley to not get a provost position at Eton College um, because Huxley wasn't religious. Yeah, I mean, when you're an antiquarian and also like the son of a minister, that you have a kind of conservative viewpoint and don't really think very highly of like modernist society is not like super surprising. For sure. There's no surprises here. He's very conservative. He was pro banning books that didn't have conservative views. For example, there's a book that uh, had a thinly veiled lesbian couple and he's Mm. like, it'll be fine to burn this book. We're not losing anything to literature. That's so interesting. Like, I get that he's a conservative. I get it. But being an antiquarian, like, you're supposed to be super into, like, old texts and junk. Right. Like, what if people, like, had burned earlier things? Like, you should understand the historical value of, like, this should be kept around so that in the future when they dig up our bones, they understand that we didn't like this book or whatever. Right? Yeah. Just a quick note here that he was against Irish home rule. Hmm. So... Kind of puts him in a certain book for me. Also, he hated James Joyce, uh, but I can at least get behind that because James Joyce needs to learn how to edit. I mean, if you don't like the Irish, I feel like not liking James Joyce sort of looks like comes along with that. It does make his <laughs> fandom of Sheridan Le Fanu interesting to me because yes. wasn't he Irish? It's not that he hates Irish people, Ben. He just doesn't want them to rule themselves. <laughs> anyway. Fair enough. So he has these ghost collections, these travel guide books to castles and cathedrals, and then many scholarly medieval works and translations. So you might be wondering, like, why is he a big name in ghost stories and in horror fiction if he only did, like, these few collections? And I think a big part of that is that fans of James are also notable horror writers. Right. And kind of the biggest example here is H.P. Lovecraft in particular, but people like Marjorie Bowen, Mary Butts, John Betjeman, E.F. Blyler, on and on. Yeah, um, and can... it even continues to today uh, where people are like super into him. Like um, Stephen King uh, is a big fan of James. So it, it just can, kind of continues. You can really see the line from M.R. James to H.P. Lovecraft like very, very easily. Um, that's for sure. 
I agree. I think the other reason why James's work has proliferated the way it has is you told these stories at Christmas time. And when something is baked into a tradition, it lives on, even if it wasn't super widespread originally. Sure. Um, there are also a ton of adaptations. So that's likely why yeah. it's lived on. Um, now, the first adaptation of Emma James's work is in 1932. There was a radio adaptation of A School Story. Multiple adaptations through the 40s and 50s on radio. The first television adaptation was in 1951 in America. And it was an adaptation of the short story, The Tractate Midoff. And it starred Leslie Nielsen. Oh, fun. Back when he was a serious actor. Yes, rather than a comedic actor. Exactly. There have been many BBC and ITV adaptations as recently as 2019, with an adaptation for 2021 Christmas time announced. Uh, it's an adaptation of the Mesotent short story. And in fact, a lot of these adaptations and specials are timed for Christmas time, whether they are actual adaptations or even as basic as an actor being hired to read to the camera, as is what happened with Christopher Lee in 2010. Oh, cool. However, there was only one film adaptation of this short story, Casting the Rune, which is tonight's movie, Night of the Demon. Which, you know, I was going to mention this later. But I'm gonna I'm gonna sneak this in here right now. Yeah. This film was released in the UK on December 17th. Christmas. Yeah. So the 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 ghost story horror story Christmas connection is still like strong in I think British culture in a way that it is no longer strong in like North American culture. Well, we will bring it back. Okay. Um, so Casting the Runes was in the second collection, 1911's More Ghost Stories. It has been adapted to radio um, and on a couple of BBC television episodes. On radio, it was in 1947. Then the next adaptation is this film. Then BBC adapts it in 1968 and 1979. And then we have another couple of radio adaptations in 74 and 81. So not very frequent compared to some of the other works, but clearly still, you know, a mine that people will frequent. As for what the short story is about, Casting the Runes follows Mr. Edward Dunning. Uh, he works as a researcher for the British Museum. He's finished reviewing a book titled The Truth of Alchemy by alchemist and occultist Mr. Carswell, who I think is a thinly veiled Alistair Crowley stand-in. You would be correct. Dunning is quite proud of the review until he hears that a fellow reviewer, John Harrington, reviewed the book, and then died in a freak accident afterwards. After hearing this, he keeps seeing John's name pop up and actually eventually meets his brother, and they start to dig into the cause of the death, discovering that Carswell has actually cursed them through putting runes on paper and then putting that paper in like their pockets. Now, because of this curse, whoever has this paper is cursed to die in three months since the writing of the runes. They end up tracking down Carswell. They give him the runes back and then Carswell dies uh, from the curse uh, and physically uh, dies from a stone falling from St. Wolfram's church in Abbeville, which is a real place. Okay. Do we need to explain what runes are? Fancy cryptic mystical writing. 
Sure. At, like at one point, um, runes were a system of writing that was like really used by like real cultures, um, like the old Norse and things like that. But um, because then was adopted of, by occultists. Yeah, because it's old and it's pagan and it's like Norse and stuff. It got yeah, like fetishized adopted. by occultists and became associated with mysticism and so on. Yeah. So um, because Alistair Crowley is like thinly veiled in here, I just thought I would mention a reminder that Alistair Crowley lived during this time, 1875 to 1947. 1920s also saw a huge increase in spiritualism. So, you know, reasons why ghost stories and why people would know who Alistair Crowley is and you know, maybe he's avoiding being cursed by using a stand-in name rather than Crowley himself. Yeah, um, Crowley was quite infamous in his time. When did M.R. James pass away? James passed away in 1936 at 73 years old. Okay. Um, he was still working as a provost at Eton College, actually, um, after, uh, it was a few years after, but after he stopped Huxley from getting that post, he, mm-hmm. he got it, which is like suspicious but whatever um yeah so he was still working so it wasn't like a long illness or anything um okay. died of old age all right so the story of the film version of casting the runes which obviously got a title change in there somewhere uh begins with screenwriter charles bennett who had bought the film rights to casting the runes um as like a project for himself to explore Bennett was born in 1899 in a disused railway carriage in Sussex, the son of an actress and an unknown father. Uh, His mom told him that his father was Charles Bennett, a deceased engineer who had died in an explosion. Charles believed that his father was Kirill Bello, uh, an English stage actor of his mother's acquaintance. On his birth certificate, it says his father is Frederick Bennett, who was otherwise like known as Charles Bennett's older brother, um, <laughs> who passed away in World War One. Um, so you know, just some big question marks there over Charles's origin. Um, he was basically raised to be an actor. He was a child actor uh, growing up. Um, he served in the Royal Fusiliers in World War One, and then after the war, continued acting. In the mid-1920s, he transitioned from acting to playwright. And in 1929, his play Blackmail was adapted by Alfred Hitchcock into the first British sound film. Oh, cool. Same name? Yes. Cool. This led to British International Pictures hiring Bennett as a screenwriter, and he would write a number of films through the early 1930s. When Alfred Hitchcock moved over to Gamont British, he made two films from Bennett's scripts, uh, the first being The Man Who Knew Too Much and the second being The 39 Steps. So Bennett found himself in like high demand because of his partnership with Alfred Hitchcock. So he worked on like several big profile movies in between doing films for Hitchcock, uh, Secret Agent, Sabotage, and Young and Innocent. His high status in Britain attracted the attention of Hollywood, and he signed with Universal in 1937 and moved to the U.S. And then longtime listeners of the show would remember that Universal ran into some financial difficulties in the late 30s, and they found that they could no longer afford Bennett and let him go. Oh, no. 
So as like a freelancer now in Hollywood, uh, he did some work for Hitchcock when Hitchcock came to America, contributing to the scripts for Foreign Correspondent and Saboteur. Uh, And he also did scripts for Samuel Goldwyn and Cecil B. DeMille. He returned to London in 1944 to write propaganda films for the British government. And after the war was over, he stayed in Britain and began directing his own films. He wrote for television as well. Um, His most notable credit for television in terms of like what modern day people would remember and recognize would be that he wrote the teleplay for the 1954 episode of the anthology series Climax that adapted Ian Fleming's novel Casino Royale. Famously, that adaptation was done for American audiences and changed British agent James Bond into American agent Jimmy Bond and changed American agent Felix Leiter into British agent Clarence Leiter. Um, Also famously features Peter Lorre in the role of Le Chiffre. Bennett's script that he wrote based on casting the runes was called The Haunted, and he sold the script to producer Hal E. Chester before leaving for America to begin his long multi-film partnership with producer Irwin Allen, which would last through the 50s and 60s on multiple feature films. Upon arriving in America, however, Bennett learned that RKO had wanted to produce the film and had been waiting for Bennett to arrive to make the pitch to him um, and that they had wanted him to direct it. And so he immediately came to regret selling the script to Chester. Hal Chester was born in Brooklyn in 1921 as Harold Robotsky. And his father was a New York City property developer who suffered a fall in fortune after the Wall Street crash of 1929, Mm. leading Hal to become a initially a magician's assistant, but like eventually an actor in order to try to support the family. At age 14, he became one of the original Dead End kids in Mm. the Broadway play Dead End, which was later adapted to a film Dead End which became the first in the Dead End Kids series of films, which then inspired knockoffs at other studios. And Chester was there for all of them. Uh, He moved from the play into films, playing roles in the Dead End Kids, Little Tough Guys, and the East Side Kids throughout his teen years. Um, East Side Kids was done at Monogram Pictures, and in 1945, when he would have been... 24 years old, he talked Monogram into giving him a shot as a movie producer. (laughs) See, he had somehow convinced the creator of the comic strip Joe Palooka to give him the film rights to the comic strip Joe Palooka. And so Chester produced 11 Joe Palooka movies from 1946 to 1951. 11? Yes. His biggest hit came in 1953 when he produced the Ray Harryhausen stop-motion picture Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which made $5 million on a $250,000 budget. Yeah. Whoa. In 1955, he went to Britain um, initially because he found out that he was able to take advantage of the tax laws there, which incentivized international co-productions. So it was cheaper to get a movie made in Britain if you were an American. Um, but he and his family liked it so much over there that they just like moved there and he lived there for the rest of his life. Oh, 
At the recommendation of producer Ted Richmond, Chester hired Jacques Tourneur to direct this film, uh, his first horror movie since his Val Luton RKO days. So the last time we saw Jacques Tourneur was for The Leopard Man. Didn't he do Hands? Devil's Devil's Hands? Hands? That was his father, Maurice Tourneur. Oh, okay, okay, okay. After The Leopard Man, Tourneur had been promoted to A Pictures at RKO, directing prestige films like Days of Glory, which was Gregory Peck's first film, and of course the film noir classic Out of the Past in 1947. Mm-hmm. That has our old friend Robert Mitchum. Yes, it's a really good movie. It is. In 1950, he directed Stars in My Crown, a western for MGM. Tourneur was in love with the story for Stars in My Crown, which has like a kind of um, uplifting Christian message, I guess. And he was also eager to work with his high school classmate, Joel McCrea, who was like attached to star in the picture. So Tourneur like really wanted the job directing that movie. So to win it, uh, he offered MGM to direct it for scale. What does that mean? Scale means the union minimum like wage for your position. Okay. Um, so for a director of his experience in a budget of, you know, between this many dollars and this many dollars, the minimum you can pay him is X, right? Which is usually much, much lower than what like a, a big name director will be paid. Like scale is a minimum and your agent's job is to negotiate more. more. Yeah, exactly. So MGM took this offer And Tourneur's film was very successful. It, like, doubled its money. But the effect on his career of this decision was disastrous. After accepting such a low salary, he stopped getting offers of A pictures from major studios and was instead relegated to B movies with little choice for what jobs he could take. The lesson here is don't devalue yourself. Starting in 1955 and continuing until the end of his career in the mid-60s, he also directed television, an experience which he considered the most degrading of all due to the cookie-cutter, stylist nature of TV in those days. Yeah, well, you're cranking stuff out in a week, so there's no opportunities to bring his flair. Mm -hmm. He was mostly unhappy in this stage of his career. Although there were some projects in his late career where he was able to exercise some of his former stylishness. The cast of this film is primarily British, um, but it does have the like one American star uh, conventional wisdom said would be needed to sell the film in the US. And in this case, that was Dana Andrews, who was cast in this film by Jacques Tourneur. Born in 1909 in Mississippi, he studied business administration in school in Houston before moving to L.A. in 1931 to try and make it as a singer. In 1932, he married his first wife, who would pass away of pneumonia in 1935. Their sole child would later die of a cerebral hemorrhage. His career stayed pretty low level until 1938 when he was scouted um, after appearing in a play and won a contract with Samuel Goldwyn. After signing that contract, he married his second wife in 1939. They had three children, and he finally appeared in his first film in 1940, uh, a supporting role in a B-Western. 
He continued to appear in small pictures until his first leading role in a B-war movie in 1942. His big breakthrough as an actor was getting the male lead in the classic 1944 film noir, Laura. His biggest success, in terms of like financially and critically, uh, was for 1946's The Best Years of Our Lives, in which Andrews plays a soldier with PTSD. Around 1950, he began struggling with alcoholism, which negatively affected his career and sort of sent him back into doing B-movie westerns and noirs by the middle of the decade. By the 1960s, he was mostly working in television, but by the 1970s, he had his alcoholism like pretty under control oh, and good began for him. yeah and he began appearing in a series of television PSAs uh, on the subject of alcoholism and he passed away in 1992 the characters and basic story in the movie like are pretty close to the short story um i do believe that the brother he teams up with has been changed to a sister in order to foster a romantic, romantic. yeah co-lead um and dana andrews co-star here is irish actress peggy cummins who was born in 1925 she was the daughter of actress margaret cummins peggy began acting on stage at age 13 and began appearing in films at age 15 at age 20 she was brought to hollywood with a contract with 20th century fox she returned to the uk in order to marry in 1950 and continued to make british films from that point on her last U.S. film was Gun Crazy, a highly influential film noir about a husband and wife who go on a crime spree. That's a movie that I've wanted to see for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, influential on, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, um, that one Terrence Malick film, Badlands. Is that Badlands? Yeah, yeah, Badlands. Gun Crazy is probably her most well-known role, and her second most well-known role is probably Night of the Demon. She retired from acting at age 40 in 1965 and passed away in 2017 at age 92. Wow, good run. Mm -hmm. She, um, like, up to the end, like, would participate in, like, revival screenings of Gun Crazy or Night of the Demon. Like, if there was a new restoration getting, like, screened or something, she would come to the screenings. That's cool. Yeah. So, on set, filming Night of the Demon, relations between producer Hal Chester and director Jacques Tourneur were strained um with the producer often attempting to backseat direct oh no a notable example of a disagreement between the two was for a scene where the warlock uh, carswell summons a storm at a child's birthday party chester wanted to use two electric fans to sort of simulate the wind and knock the furniture on set over um and turner was like no like this he's like this needs to be a big deal and he wanted to use two airplane engines instead (laughs) turner won that particular fight nice when chester would try to tell turner how to direct a scene turner would be very diplomatic and patient um and just sort of like listen to him and say like now now Hal, like i i think i know what i'm doing here and like just be very patient with him um but this behavior was not tolerated by dana andrews um this infuriated him and finally he had enough and one day he just sort of snapped and told the producer look you little son of a bitch you want me to walk off this picture i didn't come all this way over here to have the producer tell me what he thinks about directing the picture i came here because mr turner asked me to let the director direct the picture nice 
Meanwhile, Charles Bennett was also angry with Hal Chester, who had rewritten his script. Oh, no. Bennett felt after the movie came out that whatever value the movie still had was because the core of his original script was so strong that it could only be ruined so much. Um, But he was so incensed by the changes made in the whole situation and, you know, maybe the fact that uh, he felt that he should have gotten the chance to direct this himself kind of thing. Um, that he later said that if Chester walked up my driveway right now, I'd shoot him dead. Strong feelings. He did always make a point to say that he had no ill will towards Jacques Tourneur, that like Tourneur was just <laughs> directing the script he'd been given and doing his best. Sure. <laughs> the most famous argument between Tourneur and Chester was over whether to actually show the demon. Mm. Turner, of course, had pioneered the less is more school of horror, uh, where you just sort of spook the audience out with shadows in the dark. And he believed the demon should not be seen. Whereas Chester believed that there needed to be something <laughs> in the movie for audiences to see. Here's the thing. Horror has changed since Toner has been around the block. Yeah, it's 1957. We see monsters now. Yeah, we have little monster movies. I, I'm kind of with the producer on this one. So there's sort of a misconception, a popular misconception, that um, Toner was like firmly against ever showing the demon um, at all. And Chester, you know, was the one who was fully for it. Um, that's not quite true. They did come to a compromise. Uh, and that compromise was that Tunur shot scenes of Dana Andrews being chased through the woods by like a moving mist. Um, and then at the very end of the movie, the original intent was that like right at the climax of the action, you would see the demon for four frames of the film so that the audience would leave unsure of whether they'd seen anything at all. So that's what they shot. And then after principal shooting was completed and Tourneur had gone back to the U.S., Chester rounded up a crew and shot additional scenes for the beginning and end of the picture, which explicitly show the demon in like full, like very much there. Uh, Something that Tourneur never forgave him for. Yeah. So um, the other big misconception about this film has to do with the multiple versions that exist. Okay. Um, There are commonly said to be two uh their running times are commonly said to be 96 minutes and 82 minutes one of them is the uk version one of them is the u.s version which is which is completely inconsistent when you look around the internet whether the longer one is the u.s or the shorter one is the uk or vice versa and there's a lot of different stories about like why changes were made like oh the original version was 96 minutes but then like it got cut by censors down to the 82 minute version and things like that the reality is much more complicated (laughs) so there are in fact four versions of the movie because the 96 and 82 minute versions exist for both the u.s and the UK. Okay. So the original UK cut of the film, pre-release, ran 96 minutes. This you could consider to be like the director's cut, except that we know it's not because it's got demon footage in it. Um, but this would be like the the finished cut of the film. The movie did not run into a lot of trouble with the BBFC because the BBFC had been working with the movie since 
like the screenwriting stage and you know from the screenwriting stage said hey this is going to get an x rating and hal chester was like great cool that's what we want you know um there was one cut from the pre-release version asked for by the bbc which is a line of dialogue talking about the pleasures of sin (laughs) but when it came time to release the film in december of 1957 the distributors columbia pictures felt that in order to make its money back Night of the Demon needed to be seen as a double bill with some other horror B-movie. And so they programmed it with Ray Harryhausen's 20 Million Miles to Earth, uh, which is a sci-fi monster flick. In order to be programmed with that movie, they asked that the film be cut down to 82 minutes. So Chester and his editors, like basically cut all the fat off the film, just created like a very lean version of the film um, that rearranged the order of some scenes, cut out some scenes, um, cut dialogue from scenes, like all kinds of stuff, just cutting like whatever they could to get to that 82 minute mark. The story is still like perfectly comprehensible. Um, and I think the big factor here is that it was done by the people who made the movie, mm-hmm. not just some dude in a garage. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's perfectly comprehensible. Um, It's more just the fact that the 96 minute version has like more character development and more time for like exposition and more time for like things to make sense. Basically, it was released originally theatrically in the UK at 82 minutes with that double bill in 1957 to above average reviews, which praised Tourneur's uh, directing and style, but criticized the decision to show the demon because as our listeners should remember, British critics don't like actually seeing monsters in horror movies. The movie was released at the same length, 82 minutes in the U S in March of 1958 under the title curse of the demon. Um, with the title change coming because uh, in the U.S., Columbia Pictures did not want to have confusion with the drama film Night of the Iguana that was out around the same time. Oh, sure. In this case, it was shown as a double bill with Hammer's Revenge of Frankenstein. So both the U.K. and the U.S. theatrical cuts of this movie were 82 minutes. The full 96-minute version first showed up on U.S. home video from Columbia when they released the title to Laserdisc and VHS in 1988. So that is a uncut version with the Curse of the Demon title. So that being in existence as the standard home video version in the U.S. for many years created this confusion about the U.S. version being the longer cut and the British being the shorter but then sort of narratives developed about like oh the u.s one is the cut down one and and all these kinds of confusions um but in fact all four cuts exist the most recent home video release of the film which is what we're going to be watching is the blu-ray from indicator which includes all four versions of the film uh that blu-ray came out in 2018 for the purposes of the show we are going to be watching the full-length 96 minute british version with the night of the demon title over the years uh critical opinion of this film has grown from its initial like positive but muted reception to now being considered like one of the classics of the genre but to this day there is still debate and argument among fans and critics of this film whether the decision to show the demon was the correct one or not interesting we will add our voices to that i'm sure indeed 
if you want to watch this movie on like an internet platform, uh, you should know that what is available on iTunes and YouTube is the 82 minute Curse of the Demon version. So the U.S. theatrical release. Okay. Well, folks, I hope you can find a copy and watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss Night of the Demon from 1957, directed by Jacques Tourneur. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Night of the Demon from 1957, directed by Jacques Tourneur. Ben, what did you think of this? Well, this was very good. Yes, it was. It's been a while since we've had a really good movie. (laughs) Very true. At least it feels that way. Yeah. Definitely feels sort of like a throwback to the, the good old Val Luton days in some ways. Yeah, I think that's just turner's style sure but i agree it feels like coming back to something it feels like saying hi to an old friend you know (laughs) yeah exactly um as far as what i know of the short story the basic plot beats are the same but there are some differences and i feel like the movie probably expanded on quite a bit sure um just some extra added cul-de-sacs of plot (laughs) a little bit Uh, So let me give the lowdown. Yeah, for sure. Now we do get some opening narration that to summarize is basically like the supernatural is real, maybe. Right. Then when we get into the story, we see a Professor Harrington. He is investigating Mr. Carswell's satanic cult and planning an expose at an upcoming conference of psychologists and hypnotherapists. But... He announced that he was doing this expose. Carswell didn't like that and seems to have cursed him. And when we come into the story, Harrington is hurriedly trying to get to Carswell and convince him to remove the curse and say, you know, I'll pull back what I've said. Um, I'll stop the investigation, whatever. Just please save me. Carswell asks, well, do you have the piece of parchment with the runes on it that I gave you? And the professor replies that, no, it actually, like, flew into the fire, like it had a mind of its own. And Carswell just nods and says, well, head on home. I'll do what I can. Which is nothing, Mm -hmm. because Harrington drives home, and uh, as soon as he parks, he realizes that the demon is coming. Um, And it looks like this, like, smoke billowing out of nothing, preceded by um these like trickly sounds Mm -hmm. that sound almost like something out of a roger corman movie it sounds like a rusty like whining piece of machinery like if you had like a a squeaky wheel on something or a squeaky gear in something and as the noise gets louder and the smoke gets closer we see the figure of an actual demon coming out of the darkness Now, Harrington freaks out, gets into his car and tries to drive away, drives into an electrical post and gets electrocuted and dies. Meanwhile, 
Dr. John Holden arrives in Britain. Now, John is a member of the team investigating the satanic cult. Um, So as he arrives, the rest of the team kind of brings him up to speed that, you know, our head dude has died and that the investigation involves a Rand Hobart who was a member and then, you know, gave them the inside scoop. Unfortunately, Hobart has now gone insane and is also suspected of murder. He is currently being held in a uh, mental institution. But John is getting caught up on the notes, so he heads down to the British Museum to borrow some old tomes. <laughs> um, and this is when he meets Carswell. Now, they've spoken on the phone, and Carswell kind of threatened him to, you know, drop the investigation or else. And John laughed in his face. <laughs> um, and now he gets to do it again, but in person. Carswell does give John his card, as well as uh, accidentally pushes the notes off the table, so... Carswell picks up the notes and hands them to John and then leaves. There are some like mysterious things to go on to make you suspect like, is there supernatural things with Carswell? Such as like mysterious handwriting disappearing from the business card and Carswell kind of walking away in like a fuzzy view. But John, John isn't deterred. So he's going to keep going on with this investigation. But first... He's going to attend the funeral of his colleague, Professor Harrington. And this is when he meets Joanna. They sort of met on the plane over because it was a bit of a meet cute. But this is when they really meet and learn each other's names. Um, She shares that she is the professor's niece and that she's worried for John's safety since he's continuing the investigation. They meet up later and she gives him her uncle's diary that shares that, you know, he felt like he was being followed, um, that something was chasing him, that he had been told he was going to die on the day that he wound up dying, and all these kind of mysterious things leading to his death. Now, John is again, like, not convinced, but he does need to go to see Carswell because um, one of the old tomes that he needs from the British Museum is no longer at the museum. Carswell has it, so he's going to go borrow it. So they drive out to the Carswell mansion just in time to see a children's Halloween party going on and Carswell doing magic tricks. Carswell and John talk and Carswell tries to show his powers by calling on the winds and causing um basically a cyclone and windstorm to kind of wreck the party um and i have to say the uh airplane engine wind was very effective in convincing me that oh this is an actual windstorm yeah so one point to turner now at the carswell mansion joanna strikes up a bit of a friendship with mrs carswell not Mr. Carswell's wife, but his mother. He lives with his mother. And she's like, oh, you know, Jillian, he's just so fussy. But Joanna, maybe he'll take a liking to you. (laughs) Um, And it's like, girl, if if he's fussy, I think that I know what that's code for. Mm. Anyways, they learn that the book that they need is written in runes and you need a cipher key to read it. Also during this visit... Carswell tells John that he will die in three days. Specifically on the 28th of October. Yes. Because this movie's set around Halloween. Despite coming out around Christmas. Yes. Spooky stories happen at Halloween and you tell people about them at Christmas. (laughs) Sure. 
Well, because then it's convincing when you say this happened to a friend of a friend of mine. <laughs> um, so John and Joanna start to get a little closer, um, having dinner together. And during one of these dinners, John finds that he himself has a piece of parchment with runic writing on it. What's eerie is that as soon as he discovers it, it flies from his hand as if it has a mind of its own and flies towards the fireplace where it will burn up. But the fire screen catches it. And Joanne is like, oh, it, it's purposely flying towards the fireplace. And John's like, no, it, it's the wind from the window. And they close the window. The parchment continues to try to get into the fire. See, it's still trying to get into the fire. And John's like, no, Joanna, it must just be a draft from the chimney. But anyways, they catch it and he tucks it away. Meanwhile, John and his team for this investigation um, need to get release papers signed by the Hobart family in order to get Rand Hobart out of the institution to testify during this expose. So he goes there and it's like a very creepy village family who are all believers in this cult. And when they see the parchment paper, they tell John that he is doomed. He's chosen and doomed and there's nothing he can do about it. On his way back, John does stop at quote-unquote Stonehenge. And I say that with a question mark because that is where he also finds some of the same runic writing on these stones. But Stonehenge doesn't have writing on it. So that's why there's a question mark at the end of my sentence. Yeah, I think they might have shot at Stonehenge. Like, it might really be Stonehenge. I think so. Um, But yeah, like, if there was any writing at Stonehenge, the question of, like, oh, who built Stonehenge? Like, when did they build it? How did they build it? Like, would not be... A mystery. Exactly, yeah. You'd be like, oh, runes. I know when this is from. (laughs) As he heads back into town, he gets a message from Joanna to meet her outside of this house. So he goes there and turns out they have been invited to a seance at the behest of Mrs. Carswell, who seems very adamant about trying to help them. At the seance, um, again, John is like, oh, this is just a bunch of hooey. We meet Mr. and Mrs. Meek, Mr. Meek being the medium, and we get some like spooky stuff going on. But specifically, we hear from the now dead Professor Harrington, uh, sharing that Carswell has the key to read these runes. So with that information, um, very logical next step is for John and Joanna to go and break into the mansion to try to find this key. They do this. It's a very spooky sequence. It's very well done. Um, at one point, it seems like John fights a cat demon, um, good callback to cat people, in my opinion. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but ultimately, he gets caught by Carswell, who's like, why, why are you struggling to find it? I left it out for you. So it was easy to find. Come on, guy. So it's as if Carswell's playing with John a bit and reminds him, hey, you're going to die in two days. Um, as John is leaving, he leaves back through the forest. Um, and this is when he gets chased by this kind of smoke that billows through the forest. Um, It appears to be the same kind of smoke that we saw at the beginning, but we do not see a demon. 
After all of that, Joanna takes John to Scotland Yard to try to file some kind of police report, and of course they are left out of the building. The next day is the big expose, and also John's final day. Dun dun. <laughs> now, they've gotten Rand Hobart out of the hospital, and now he, they have him ready to testify. Except he's catatonic. So just to, like, again, reiterate, he is in this catatonic state and is suspected of murder, but went crazy because he believes that a demon did the murder and, yeah, is now in this state. So in order to hypnotize him, they inject him with chemicals to, like, force a response from his body to then calm him down and then hypnotize him and then inject him with more chemicals to make him susceptible to hypnosis. Well, they're just giving they're giving him stimulants specifically because they're giving him pentothal to start to just get him responsive. And then once he's hypnotized, they give him, I mean, basically methamphetamines. It's just to like keep him responsive, I guess. But it. It made me a little uncomfortable because these are supposed to be our heroes. It's it's also like a little funny because it's like, all right, so he's catatonic. So we need to bring him out of his catatonic state so we can put him under hypnosis. Exactly. It's weird. But anyways, under hypnosis, Hobart testifies that, um, yes, everything I've said about the cult is true. Um, they believe that evil is good and good is bad and you know, the pleasures of sin are good and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then they turn to what happened the night of the demon. That's the name of the movie. Yes, it is. Hobart starts to like panic. Like it was a demon. Like, I don't want to talk about it. And they press him and he mentions that, you know, the demon attacked because I had the parchment and I gave it back to the person who gave it to me. That's the only escape I have to save myself. And John shows him his parchment and is like, like this? And Hobart's like, yes, that's exactly it. You're trying to give that to me. And he starts to freak out, runs out of the room, and actually jumps out of a window to escape and dies because he falls from like a six-story building. And it's at this point that John is like, oh, shit, I think I'm actually in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> So he manages to track Carswell down to a train. Um, he gets on and surprise, Joanne is here as well because she got basically abducted, um, put under hypnosis and abducted. John's like, whatever's going to happen to me at 10 p.m. in five minutes is going to happen while you are here, Carswell. And Carswell starts to get really nervous about this. It's also clear that John is trying to get the parchment paper back to Carswell by handing him like, here's your coat, here's your book, here's yeah. your hat. And Carswell being like, oh, no, I, I don't need that. Like, I'm not taking anything from you. Because the thing about the parchment is you have to take it without knowing that you're taking it. Mm -hmm. Carswell clearly knows that this is like the only way for John to escape. That's why he's on a train so that like he's not around for 10 o'clock for when this is supposed to happen. Yeah. Um, but the scenes where Holden keeps like trying to pass him stuff <laughs> that he's like palmed the parchment into Carswell having to like not take it uh, were very funny. Yeah, it was good. Um Funny, but like it's still tense. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. it's not just laughing at the movie or anything like that. No, no. Yeah, but it's good. It's good. He manages to get the parchment 
to Carswell. And he gets off the train, realizes he has the parchment, and of course, with a mind of its own, it flies out of his hands down the train tracks. Carswell goes chasing after it, and just as he gets to it, it burns up um, of its own volition. Realizing that it's 10 o'clock, he looks up, and there comes the billowing smoke and the demon. Now, he's on train tracks in a train yard. So there's trains running by, and it's a very chaotic scene. And despite the chaos, we see the demon basically pick up Carswell and just rip him to shreds like he's a doll. Um, Once the trains pass and the demon has also gone off, um, the authorities are running over to the body that is still smoking. (laughs) And they're like, oh, must have been a train. What else could it have been? And John starts to go over and Joanna's like, isn't it better to not know? And John takes another few steps, sees like the still smoking corpse and then turns back and is like, yeah, I think it is better to not know. (laughs) The end. Yeah. This is one of the few movies that we've seen that has one of those like there are some things man is not meant to know ending bits of dialogue that actually feels earned. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, it's probably better not to know. In this case, yes. Yeah. And I think part of that is also because it's not coming from like an authority figure turning to the camera and being right. like, don't go past your limits, human. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. 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 So this is a really good movie. Yes. Um, you can, if you are a fan of like Lovecraftian stuff, I think you can draw the line between his type of stories and James's types of stories very easily mm-hmm. uh, watching this movie. I think the central conflict being this conflict about like skepticism versus belief basically is really strong. Yes. Um, I think that's the other thing other than just Tourneur's style that makes it feel like a Luton movie to me is that like there's a, a central element at the center of the movie is ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Is this happening? Is it not? Is he a warlock? Is he not? And there's, you know, characters who represent different like philosophical points of view who are embattled with each other, right? I think it's maybe a little more obvious than a Luton movie. Because we get that opening scene of literally seeing the demon. Well, yes. Also, though, even before you get into the do you show the demon or not question, there's sort of a sense that this is like slightly dumbed down Luton. Like Luton movies could sometimes get so concerned with their philosophical underpinnings that they would occasionally like forget to be horror movies for a while (laughs) sure that's Um, what happened with um ghost ship isn't it yeah um and like stuff like bedlam yeah well but this movie kind of like sticks to the point it sticks to the point even more in the 82 minute version um the 96 has like a bit more philosophy in it but also a luton movie very famously tends to have a luton bus in it you know one (laughs) good fake scare right where you get jump scared by something and it turns out like oh it was a cat or whatever right this movie has like over five there are many the first is uh a bunch of children jumping out out of nowhere yeah just screaming right at the camera um so that got me when john is creeping through the mansion we see a hand like think like thing from the Adams family following him but it's it's not actually thing it's 
Carswell, Carswell, but you only see the hand pop out with the music and it was so close to the camera that it did get me. There's like the cat that jumps out at him. They do it a few times with like stuff at the train yard. Yeah. Um, They, they definitely like, this is maybe the first horror movie that we've seen to really lean on jump scares. And also do them well every time. Right. Yes. Uh, with the caveat, like little footnote of, okay, no, the children was cheap. The yeah. children was cheap. Some of them are, well, the other thing with jump scares is that they're like diminishing returns because if you do it too much in a movie, it's like you lose the surprise, right? Yeah. Um, if someone jumps out from around a corner and says boo at you like seven times in the space of an hour, like you're going to kind of get immune to it. I think the reason why the children felt cheap is because the setting is Carswell and John walking around the grounds talking about, like, is the supernatural real or not? And it's during the day, and then just suddenly kids with masks pop out. And it's the, the way that they're talking isn't building tension. It's building the philosophy mm-hmm. and that discussion, but it's not building the tension. Whereas when John is in the manor house, when... We're in the train yard and it's the climax. The tension is there. For sure. The other thing, too, is that, like, the kids with the Halloween masks, like, the motivation for their presence is that, like, we're at Carswell's yeah, uh, Halloween party for kids. But, like, they've explicitly walked, like, way far away from where the party is. So that's really why these kids feel like they just kind of come out of nowhere. They're just there for the scare, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think I think this is a little more in your face than your typical Val Luton movie. That being said, Turner is directing the cinematography, the style here with the shadows and even the mise-en-scene or blocking of everything was really, really good. Yeah. It's really great when you watch a horror movie directed by someone who recognizes that it's okay to have darkness on screen. Yes. And to not see everything. Yeah. Um, This movie doesn't look cheap. No. Like, there's a lot of location shooting throughout. Um, It has pretty good pacing. Like, you can definitely accuse it of doing the B-movie thing, of just kind of, like, moving between, like, two or three similar locations through the whole movie. But you don't feel it because it's not, like, the same camera angle every time you go there. It's not the same setup. There's different stuff going on every single time. I think the other reason why this does doesn't feel like a a b-movie or feel cheap is the acting is really good yeah carswell and holden are both really well performed characters yes i feel like neil mcginnis who plays carswell could have like gone too far into caricature but he does a really good job of playing like a dude and then leader of a cult and then also having a little bit of um Charles Lawton in Island of Lost Souls vibes. Sure, yeah. Um, and then also playing when he's scared to like take anything from John. Like I, I think he does a really well-rounded performance here. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things I really like about his performance is just like for how how calm Carswell is through the majority of the film. Because it's like, yeah, I have magic powers. <laughs> I can control demons. You're going to die on this particular date. There's really no question of that. So why should he be like 
over the top and and all over the place and muahahaha and all this kind of stuff. Like it's it's far more believable that his attitude towards everything is like, yeah, man, it's my world. You're just living in it. Exactly. Like, so I really liked that. I really liked the other thing. I really liked is um, there's a particular trope in fiction that I always enjoy, which is antagonists and protagonists who are very like polite and cordial to yeah. each other where it's just like oh yeah do you want some tea like i'll invite you over to my house you can borrow this book like you know um i don't know there's just something about that that i always really like <laughs> yeah i thought the performance that dana andrews gives for holden is really good um we watched the 96 minute version his character suffers a bit in the 82 because they have to cut out some of the like not plot essential bits of characterization he comes across in the 82 minute version a little more one note sure. and kind of like an asshole and a bit of a jerk. And it turns into one of those movies where you don't understand like what Joanna sees in him kind of thing because he's just kind of an asshole to her all the time. But the 96 minute version gives the movie more room to breathe and like lets you see the charming side of him and like develops his character a bit more fully with some like, you know, jokes and some politeness and things like that. And I, I really think Dan Andrews does a really good job. I think. The key here is that the actors act like they believe the world that they're in. Yeah. Yeah. One thing about the cast, though, we do have a case of um, brown face. Oh, yes. We do have some oops brown face. Yeah. So one of the members of the team investigating the cult is this Indian professor, uh, Professor Kumar, I think, or it might be Dr. Kumar. Um, but yeah, it's a British dude in brown face doing an Indian accent. Yeah. It's not like egregiously, like maliciously stereotypically racist or anything. Like it's just like the screenwriter was like, Oh, it'd be neat if, you know, there was some international like representation here. And, you know, then the casting directors were like, cool, we'll grab an actor and paint him Brown. Cause that's just like what people did back then. It's not to excuse it. It's just so that if you are seeking out this movie, you should know, like it's not going to be, like super, super uncomfortable bad in terms of like being a racial stereotype. Like it's a respectful character. It's just, it's a white dude. Yeah. I will say I was a little nervous because of the team investigating the cult. He's the one guy who says, no, I believe in the supernatural and I believe in demons, etc. And when John needs to find where Carswell is. It's this professor who says, oh, he's on the train. Mrs. Carswell told me. I wasn't sure if that was going to be a trap because, mm. you know, he's like, yeah, I believe in demons. Yeah, I believe in the supernatural. So I wasn't sure if they were going to be like, well, he's part of the cult and he's right. leading him astray. Right. And how that could be potentially be very bad when that's like the only non-white character in your movie but that's not the case um so there's at least you know that yeah he's he's basically a, a neutral character in yeah. terms of just like portrayal we've kind of already spoken about this but um the pacing is really well done i think the change of three days instead of three months mm. makes so much more sense um, yeah <laughs> In a movie, you have to give things a bit of a feeling of urgency. Yes. Um, the tension is really well done here and the atmosphere. It definitely builds. Um, it does really well with adapting what it seems like is the atmosphere in M.R. James's short story. 
And because of that atmosphere and tension, those jump scares really work. And I feel like the other reason why those jump scares really work as well is because they are underscored with the music from Clifton Parker, um, whose name sounds familiar, but I didn't recognize any of his credits. Um, But the music in here works really well. And the, I don't want to say Mickey Mousing, where it's like, do, 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 with the feet. Um, But when there'd be like a musical sting, when like the hand appears, it really underscores the scare and works really well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Someone else we didn't mention in the opening is Ken Adams, who is the production designer here, which I think means he probably had something to do with the big demon monster that we see. Um, but he went on to very famously be like the production designer of the early, like Sean Connery bond movies, very famous for his like villain layer designs. Nice. Like that's him. Yeah. Cool. Um, speaking of layers, uh, the manor house is pretty cool. It feels like a real place, but at the same time, there were moments where I was wondering if we had seen some of these sets before. The manor house had a similar vibe to Spiral Staircase. Yeah, yeah. And the home where John goes to visit the Hobarts, um, outside of it, I feel like we saw the outside of this house in the Quartermass Experiment. And inside, we have definitely seen, if not for the podcast, just for other movies, for like the inside of an inn, Okay. for example. Yeah, the the mansion also kind of reminded me of the house in The Uninvited. Sure. Um, but yeah, I'm not really sure if it's that's just like part of a, these old manor houses all kind of have a similar layout sort of deal or what? Similar layout, but also they're going for that dark spookiness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thematically, as I was saying earlier, this is like a movie about belief versus skepticism. And it's very much like, you know, your a hoax, you're a magician, you're supernatural gobbledygook, and I'm science and reason and rationality. So the thing that does stand out to me a little bit in this movie is the hypnosis scene. Yes. I I really appreciate that John is like, hypnosis and hypnotherapy is a little like cringe because of Bridie Murphy stuff. Yes, I did like that. That was a good little <laughs> acknowledgement. Yeah. And then they go to hypnosis anyways. Well, my difficulty with this is that like he goes to seances and he's like, this is all gobbledygook. And he blames Harrington's death on autosuggestion. Basically the idea that like, if you believe in something uh, hard enough, like you can kind of, it becomes true for you, even if it's not explicitly true, right? So the fear that Harrington experienced was real. The paranoia was real. He really believed it was a demon and he could have seen something that his mind created for him and, you know, had the accident trying to get away from it. But that doesn't mean that the demon is real. Um, and he brings all that up and then he hypnotizes a guy. And like hypnosis is is suggestion. My personal feeling is that hypnosis is kind of a pseudoscience like it really doesn't it kind of seems like bunk to me especially the version of hypnosis that hollywood uses yes right where you just kind of like flash something in someone's eye and tell them they're getting sleepy and that now they're under hypnosis and like boom suddenly you have unlocked their subconscious like hollywood treats hypnosis like it's the vulcan mind meld right (laughs) but what's weird about it is the way that Hollywood does portray hypnosis 
Like, isn't that different from the way it would portray like some hocus pocus mind reading spells? Yeah. Or a truth serum. Right. Like this kind of thing where you have this person up here and you're saying the magic words and now they have to answer you. Like it's interesting to me that it's a movie about science versus superstition, but we have this like pseudoscience that's Mm -hmm. getting used by the scientists. And I feel like the only reason why it's hypnotherapy and hypnosis is because as much as this movie pokes fun at Bridie Murphy, it's still riding the wave of hypnotherapy being like the hot trend or trope right now, Um, which is why this movie feels a little strange or not strange, but like unique in how the good guys are hypnotherapists. Whereas like last week, the hypnotherapists were the bad guys. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and like the mad scientists. Cause, cause warlocks are worse, I guess, than hypnotherapists <laughs> on the like morality <laughs> scale. Um, yeah, I like, I get the impression from media and stuff that people just like really believed in hypnosis at the time as, especially as like a key part of, um, psychology. Mm-hmm. All of these psychologists in movies always get portrayed as like, being equivalent with a hypnotherapist. But yeah, it is kind of funny because it's like, oh, I need you to not be under Carswell's spell, so I'm going to put you under my spell. Yeah, and like I said, the use of the chemicals to induce him to snap out of the coma and start screaming at the camera. Yeah. Um, And then more chemicals to further induce the hypnotic state it, it just made me feel a little uncomfortable, um, yeah. especially because in the comatose state, he cannot consent to any of this. Oh, yeah. Medical practice in the 50s is a little uh, sus. Absolutely. You know? A little cringe. A little cringe. As the kids say. As the kids say. Do we want to talk about the demon in the room? <laughs> is he here? <laughs> Knock twice for yes, once for no. That's a seance joke. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the demon design is pretty cool. Kind of looks like what you expect in like classic drawings of a bestial Satan. Kind of like a satyr having the horns like goats and yeah. They they like explicitly show you some medieval woodcut drawings of demons so that you'll make the connection like that that's what they're inspired by. Right. Like this is some some Hexen looking stuff. Yeah, and I think they pulled it off really well. It looks like it's um, stop motion, which is is also really cool, especially because I've gotten pretty used to Paul Blaisdell being in a suit. Right. And yeah, I think the demon in and of itself looks really cool. The effects are really well done. Super into it. Personally, I don't think it should have been shown at the beginning. The smoke... Maybe, I don't know, but the demon itself, no, because that undercuts the question of, is the supernatural real? And the ambiguity throughout the whole rest of the movie. I totally agree with you. I'm in favor of seeing the demon at the end. Yes. Because the fact of the matter is, like, at the end of your horror story, there has to be something, right? Isn't that even James's rule? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it needs to really ramp up. Yeah. Like, so... I'm in favor of showing it at the end, but I do agree that showing it at the beginning is a mistake for exactly the reasons you just gave. Mm -hmm. It does give the movie like a very different tone. And I I wonder how much of it was intentional because if you don't have it at the start, it's a mystery that he's trying to solve. Having it at the start means that it's like 
you know, it creates dramatic irony. We, the audience know that he's fucked. And so every time he's like, ah, it's not real, but you know, we're screaming at the screen being like, nah, dude, take it seriously. Yeah. That's why I'm like, I, I like the intro where Harrington gets scared and we hear the weird sounds and maybe even see some of the smoke he gets scared and then crashes, whatever, and we just don't see what happens. Yeah. And then throughout the rest of the movie, we get more details of, like, you know, he his body was clawed up like an animal attacked it. So how could he have died of electrocution then as the cause of death? Like, we, we get more details that would point to, no, it's a real demon. Yeah. Um, But I felt like it kind of made me realize that both Turner and... Hal Chester had good points about why to go either way. And so I, I completely understand why there's ongoing debate about this. I think the movie works. I don't think it ruins the movie. I don't think that it destroys the vision of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but it definitely undercuts that tension. And it made me think, like, if in Cat People we had seen literal transformations and stuff. It would have undercut the power of that movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So it's not like a right or wrong. It's more of where you fall on that gradient or that scale. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing is that in addition to showing it at the beginning, undercutting the ambiguity, it just feels like it goes against monster movie principles. Like this should have been like Godzilla where it starts with like, you see the boat, get destroyed and you see them screaming at something off screen, but you don't see it. Right. Because like, I feel like if you talked to an exhibitor, they would tell you, no, 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 no. You can't show the monster at the start. Cause then people will just come see the monster at the start and leave. Ah, but Ben, you already got their money. Sure. And we've seen cases of this in some of like the really crappy B movie horrors where, mm-hmm. um, I forget which one it is, but I think it's like the, uh, radioactive rays out of the bottom of the ocean or something like that. Phantom from 10,000 Leagues. Yeah, um, where it's like really strong opening before the credits even show up and it's just like, bam, right in your face. Whoa. And then nothing for the rest of the movie. Sure. And then last 10 minutes, not even, probably five minutes, we get more of the monster. Sure, that's that's fair. Yeah, it can be a hook yeah. to draw people in. So the, the monster effects are, there's three different parts to them um none of them are stop motion um so the close-ups are just like a big a big puppet i guess sort of like the um the close-ups of king kong okay right where it's just like a big head that they made and the lips flap and you know the fangs bare and the tongue moves around and stuff but it's like probably some dudes inside it like moving parts around and stuff um in the wide shots where we see it coming closer it's just like a puppet um, with like, like almost like a marionette, um, okay. with kind of like arms that can move and stuff, but it can't really like move its legs. Um, like we see its legs moving in some shots where we just see the legs moving, like in a close up. We also see a shot that was very, um, forbidden planet esque of like the invisible footprints in the, the mud. So I had to look it up and forbidden planet came out a year earlier. Okay. Yeah. Um, Because, yeah, it does have a very, like, id monster kind of feel, right? But, yeah, that puppet that we see, like, just had to kind of, um, like, roll forward 
on sure. like a little platform and then they put in a bunch of smoke so you couldn't really see that like the legs don't really move and stuff. Um, and then the third element is when we see the shot of the train going by and there's this shot of the monster like in the dark looming over the train and he's ripping Carswell into pieces. That's a dude in a suit. Yes. I really like the demon design. I really like seeing it. I think it's really cool. I agree with you about the beginning. There is one thing that I would change because I think it makes the demon feel cheap, even though it's not. Okay. Like it almost like makes the puppet somehow look bad. And that's the sound effect. They've chosen to go along with it. The, okay. the wee, 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 kind of like squeaky wheel sound effect. It's not good. I don't think, I don't think high pitched sounds are scary. I think the goal with the music or sound effect is when the smoke first starts appearing, it looks like a sparkler as if he's arriving out of hell. Yes. And so I think that's the effect, but I completely agree with you. It's a little odd. Yeah. It undercuts the demon, I think, because like we see it's like mouth opening and closing like it's roaring. They needed to go with like a low bass sound effect of some kind, right? Something more <gasps> kind of thing rather than this. Because <laughs> um, especially when you see like the puppet ambling towards him with this sound effect, like it just feels cheaper somehow. Sure. So I really don't like that sound effect. I would I would replace it with something else if I could. Okay. Well, let's move on to ranking. For sure. So where were you looking for Night of the Demon? I have a single spot. Oh, okay. What's the spot? Okay. Let me give some context first. Cool. The top three movies that Jacques Tourneur has done. Mm -hmm. Number two, Cat People. Mm -hmm. Number six, I Walked with a Zombie. Mm -hmm. And then number 57, The Leopard Man. Yeah, there's quite a drop there, huh? Yes. So when I started, I was like, okay, well, thinking about Leopard Man, Night of the Demon is definitely better. Yes, for sure. So then I was like, okay, well, let's think about I Walked with the Zombie at number six. I sat with myself and I felt that I Walked with the Zombie was better because it didn't have to worry about do I show the thing or not? You mm -hmm. really feel the horror with the actual zombies there and the the tension that it builds. Yeah, absolutely. So then I was like, okay, well, that's number six. Let's look a little further down. That's number fucking six, Ben. So <laughs> there's a lot of really good things in here. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then my eyes settled at 15 with the crater mass experiment because some of the locations seem to be the same it's also like a similar sort of vibe with like the one american star in a british yeah. movie and the american character is kind of like this brusque kind of down to business sort of guy and we've got like a big monster on the loose yeah and i ultimately came down on the side of quatermass experiment because of the horror of seeing that dude turn into the blob monster okay sure or like yeah plant blob monster yeah anyways and then I was like, oh, but the Diabolique is right below that at number 16. And that also is like, is it real? Is it not? And as much as I enjoyed Night of the Demon, at no point did something have as much like, oh, shit, power as when the dude rises from the bathtub right, and pops yeah. his eyes out. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. So I was like, OK, then we got Frankenstein. 
Bride, Dracula, those are like name brand. Night of the Demon is getting a brand behind it, but I I was like, okay, those are big names. I was like, all right, it's going to go at number 20, replace Murders in the Zoo. Okay, that's That's my spot. I had a spot, um, but it was actually below La Diabolique above Frankenstein. I had the same thought process as you. I was going to put it above Quatermass Experiment, um, but then I saw La Diabolique there, and I was like, oh, okay, fine. So that's where I picked. I basically just thought this was better than, like, the Frankensteins and the Dracula. I was thinking of the creature designs. Mm, sure, sure. Because Frankenstein and, and Dracula, like, it's to the point where Frankenstein's monster and Dracula are like trademarked right you yeah. know we last week we had a movie where it turned the mad scientist turns people into draculas not right. just vampires right <laughs> right um so i i wasn't sure how we felt about that yeah i mean that's true and like the atmosphere in dracula is very good and you know there's tons of good stuff throughout the first two frankenstein movies as well yeah even just thinking of like renfield laughing on the boat mm-hmm. Everything feels very earned, even as much as everything is very, like, static camera yeah. and stuff. Yeah, I think I think the thing about those movies is they don't have the misstep of putting the demon at the start kind of thing. Sure. Right. Okay, I'm good with this then. So entering the list at the new number 20 is Night of the Demon from 1957, directed by Jacques Tourneur. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find a link to all of the episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed, and you can help us out by leaving us a rating or a review on the service that you listen to podcasts on. If you want to help the show spread to more wonderful creatures of the night, tell your friends about the show. Share us on Reddit. Share us on a Discord. Share us on Twitter. Let people know that we're a cool show and that, uh, you know, if they're watching some classic old horror movies that, um, you know, might be cool to listen along to some of the episodes. If you want to help support the show monetarily and all of the extra bonus fun treat stuff that we do, like we mentioned up at the top of the episode, you can head over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to regular bonus materials, and there's always lots of extra fun stuff in October. So watch out for Adam's Family on Saturday and Sci-Fi Horror versus Gothic Horror on Sunday. Uh, so Ben, what are we watching next week? Well, Sarah, we have a real treat next Th- week. This was a real treat. What are you talking different, about? S- different flavor okay. of treat. Um, we are going to be watching... What will probably be our final Ed Wood film. Oh. It was shot in the late 1950s here, and it was previewed and intended for release, but it ultimately didn't come out because Ed Wood ran out of money to pay the film lab to make the prints. Oh, no. And owing the money, the lab retained possession of the negative. Sure. Because that's what happens when you don't pay your bills. Then, in the 1980s, 
a enterprising fan paid the lab Ed Wood's outstanding bills several years after Ed Wood had died and got the negative and released it to home video. And so we are going to be watching the third film in the Officer Kelton trilogy, Night of the Ghouls. Ooh, okay. So that's what's up next week, Creatures of the Night. Looking forward to it. Bye. Bye. Bye.